the chronology of the birth of Christ up to this point looks something like this. By the immutable design of God, and in accordance with the prophecies that the Spirit of God gave the Old Testament prophets, Mary and Joseph are directed by the hand of the Caesar to go to Bethlehem. And there the Christ child, the Messiah, is born. In Bethlehem, of course, they find no place, no room for them. And Jesus is born in the most humble of circumstances imaginable. He's born in a manger, a stable, um, a cut-out portion of a cave where animals are kept. After his birth, the, parents, the earthly parents of Jesus take the Christ child and Conformity to Jewish law is faithful Jewish people. They take him to Jerusalem. And we see this in the account in Luke's gospel. And they take the Christ child to Jerusalem, and there he's going to be dedicated in the temple. He'll be circumcised, and Mary will go through her purification rituals according to the law. It's there that they encounter Simeon, that man, that faithful man, that man with the prophetic word from God who'd been waiting on the promise of God to be fulfilled waiting to see the Messiah with his own eyes, to hold the Christ child in his arms, and he did. From that moment, after the events in Jerusalem, presumably because these parts of the story are not included explicitly, but implicitly, Joseph takes his young family and settles in Bethlehem where they find a proper home. It's there in Bethlehem a couple years after the birth of Christ that by a miracle of God, another revelation is given, not just for Jewish people, but for Gentile people, that this is indeed the Messiah, And a star guides these men, these magi, these advisors to pagan kings, these wise men, these students of the stars and studiers of prophets, and they make their way to Bethlehem where the child is. This caravan, as there must have been, more than just three men, more than three kings, they were not kings at all, and certainly more than three men, this caravan of people going to this small town, this small village really, five miles outside of Jerusalem, caught the attention of just about everyone, including the maniacal king of Israel at the time, King Herod. King Herod makes some faux inquiries into this. No, the inquiries are real, but his motives are illegitimate. He inquires first of the Sadducees and then of the Pharisees and finds out exactly what the prophecies of the Old Testament are about the birth of this supposed Messiah. And he will bear no rivals to his throne. He will bear no competition to his family line. And he seeks the death of this child. He tells the wise men as they go into Bethlehem, when you find him, bring me word so that I may come and worship him also. But we know according to the scriptures, his intention is not to worship, but to assassinate. By God's providence, by his good grace, carrying out the plan that he's laid in place from eternity past, God sends an angel to speak to those wise men and warns them not to go back, not to warn Herod, but to go home another way. And that's the last we see of these wise men. We don't hear their story again. We see no reference to them in the scriptures, and they make their way back home, wherever that was. And we pick up that story today in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And so I read these words. Now, when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and he departed to Egypt and he remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose. And he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this is part of that biblical account of the life of Christ, the early part of Matthew that, again, if we're not careful, we'll speed through far too quickly and we'll miss the depth of revelation in this passage because it's full of richness. There's some questions in this passage that I think just beg for an answer that speak to the worst, the most painful of human suffering. And there's some things that we can learn about God that he reveals here that if we'll take the time to look and if we'll apply our thinking to the text, I believe God will show us something profound here. So I want to ask that God would give us inspiration through this, the motivation to live faithfully through the revelation of His Word this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the thoughts to comprehend, the heart to desire, the truth You're showing us. And Father, by Your Spirit at work in those who are, who are Yours, Enable us to live this, not just to understand it or to know it or even to believe it, but to do it, to live it, to live according to what you reveal, to live as people of faith with great confidence in you, confidence that just confounds common sense, confidence that amazes the unbeliever, confidence that enables us to face whatever comes our way, not because of strength that's in us, but because of you. You are our strength. You are our rock. You are our foundation. And when we are weak, your strength is made perfect. So, Father, may we see and understand and trust and live according to that trust. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What you see in this text is shadows of old prophecy beginning to be revealed. You remember I alluded to just a moment ago, I mentioned Simeon, that elderly man in Luke's gospel, who when Mary and Joseph are making their way up the temple steps, they encounter him, and he wants to hold this baby. I mean, he, he wants the physical, the tangible proof of everything he's trusted and believed in. And when we get to Luke chapter 2, in verse 29, it says this. It says, when Simeon saw the baby, he picked him up in his arms and said this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. And you, do you get the weight of that? Man, I have waited for this moment. This is the pinnacle of my life. I can die absolutely at peace because I see your promise revealed. Thank you, God, for letting me live long enough to see this moment, to hold 
this moment, to hold the Messiah in my arms. He says, Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. I mean, it couldn't be more amazing than that. And I just try to picture myself in that moment. If I'm Mary, if I'm Joseph, watching in amazement, listening to this, can you imagine? I mean, they're carrying this infant child to be circumcised, to be dedicated to the Lord. And this old man, so full of the Holy Spirit, probably evident. And we know from the text that he was guided by the Holy Spirit. This man full of joy and peace and faith and enthusiasm holds the Christ child and announces the salvation of God for the nations. Can you imagine listening to that? But then he says something that's very foreboding. Something that would have many implications in the years to come. Listen to what he says right after that. He said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The division that this Christ child will cause will be significant. The lowly will be raised. The mighty will be brought down. Decisions will have to be made. Courses of life will be determined. Eternity will be at stake based on your response to him. And then he says something that's very personal. He speaks it to Mary. And I doubt very seriously that she could even begin to comprehend the weight of what he's about to say and what all this would entail. He says, and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. By the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he's telling Mary, the coming of Christ, this Messiah, this child that you hold, ultimately your heart is going to be broken as well. There's going to be a pain that's going to pierce a mother's heart. And as believers, we know exactly what he's alluding to, though he may not have understood it himself. That Mary will bear witness to the gruesome execution of her own son. That Mary will be present at the foot of the cross. She will see the sufferings of Jesus, which are not theoretical, not just a theological concept, but a real body hanging on a real and heinous Roman cross, shedding real blood for our sake. And so we begin to see this prophecy fulfilled. Because even now, as a baby, even now as a baby, All the forces of evil are coming against the plan of God. I want you to see that in this text. That the battle for your salvation is a cosmic battle. This is an eternal battle. This transcends you making better decisions, choosing a better future, having a more hopeful life. This is a spiritual battle at the highest level. What God intends for good, Satan intends to destroy. And you can take that truth. That's a foundational truth, by the way. You can take that truth and you can run it downstream to every area of your life. Every good thing that God intends for us, Satan intends to destroy. He wants to diminish it. He wants to devalue it. He wants to distort it, ultimately to destroy it, whether that's your marriage whether that's your family life, whether that's your own sense of yourself and your own purpose and worth and value, Satan is a murderer and a liar and a destroyer, and that's what he does. And we see this in real terms. Unless we doubt the veracity of evil in the world, unless we doubt the personification of evil, Satan, we begin to see it already. 
And we see it first being fleshed out through a man named Herod. And I want you to make just a few notes along the way, just sort of some signposts along the way in this story to kind of keep us between the guardrails. First, I just want to remind you that the threat that you see in this story is real. I don't want you to just brush this aside and say, this was, Jesus was never in danger here, okay? No, Jesus was in real danger. Herod is a maniac. And Herod has not hesitated in the past to eliminate his enemies viciously, even those enemies that were flesh and blood of his. Herod has a long history of murdering anyone he suspects to be a threat or a rival to his throne. And God, who knows the hearts of all men, knows the real intentions of Herod, that this is not bluster. He's not bluffing here. He, in his understanding of the wickedness and depravity in the heart of Herod, speaks with grace and mercy to Joseph. He dispatches an angel for their sake. The threat is real. After all, this is a real incarnation. This is not God who looks like a child, but is really some sort of specter, some, some sort of ghost. I mean, looks like the baby is lying there in its crib, but really it's just sort of hovering just a millimeter above the surface because it's really God, not a baby. No, this is a real incarnation. This is a real baby that cries, spits up, poops, all those things. It's a real child. It's a real mom with real responsibilities. And if Herod swings a real sword at the real body that is Christ, this real baby will bleed and die. And the incarnation is absolutely real. Not a morality tale, not a fable. This is a story that's meant to build our faith, to show us God's purpose, and how God's purpose to save will be carried out, how God's providence will make sure of it. A real threat, an evil man, a real baby, a real soldier seeking out the death of this child. But the hand of God, unseen, but far more powerful, determining to preserve the salvation he's offering the world. This is what you see in this story. When Jesus returned from Egypt with his family at the end of this, this is a fulfillment of Hosea chapter 11. Tonight I'm going to be preaching on Hosea chapter 11. The grace of God, the mercy of God, the, the father heart of God for a rebellious people. Because in Hosea 11, we see this profound statement of the Father. How can I give you up? Why is God merciful to rebellious people? Why is God patient to people who refuse and reject him? Why does God offer to save anyone? What is the Father heart of God? Come back tonight. I'm going to talk about that from Hosea chapter 11. But when he comes back out of Egypt, it's a fulfillment of this verse. Verse 1, out of Egypt I called my son. Now Hosea is talking about the great deliverance in the Old Testament of God's people, Israel, from captivity under the Egyptians. We know that. But Jesus is the final and true Israel, and everything in the Old Testament is pointing up to him, and he's the ultimate fulfillment of it. And the salvation that God provides of Israel, as great as it was, can't compare to the salvation he provides in Christ for the nations. And so it's all pointing, all alluding to Christ, Jesus, the climax of biblical history, the climax of human history, the climax of God's history. What God is doing in the world is Christ. Out of Egypt, I called my son. We'll talk about that tonight. The threat is real. Herod's evil was profound. It was profound. 
Now again, I mentioned to you last week, if you were here, I said that we know of Herod historically as Herod the Great, but that's not a statement of his character. That's not a statement of his personality. That's not a statement of his popularity. It's only a statement of his accomplishments, mostly in terms of building projects. He was the foremost builder of his age and one of the great builders in Israel's history. But as a man, he was, he was horrific. He was absolutely horrific. His evil is profound. I mean, we see that in this intent. It says he murdered, called for the murder of all the boy children two years and younger, not just in Bethlehem. We don't know how many this was, by the way. Bethlehem is a small village. It could have been six, eight, 10, 12. It's just speculation. But the scripture says, again, non-specifically, not just in Bethlehem, but in that region. We really don't know. But whether it were a hundred or one, how horrific is this scene? And, and by the way, this is just a, an aside to the text. Whether it's the murder of the infant who's two or the murder who's, of the infant who's not yet born, the murder is the same. The value of life is the same. The horror and the evil depicted here is the same. And he called for the death of these infant children. And the commentary by Daniel Doriani, one I like a lot, so you may hear me quote him a lot this next year. He says, it seems incredible that a king should murder all the youngest male children in one of his towns. I mean, again, this is not an enemy village. This is, these are his own people. It seems incredible that he should think that ordinary soldiers could slay the Christ, the Son of God. I mean, don't you remember, after all, he consulted with the religious leaders of his day, the scholars, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, the ruling religious class and the religious scribes. He, he consulted with them. He knew the scriptures. He knew the prophecy. He said, this is the Messiah, the hope of God, the salvation of Israel. You think you can dispense with that? Yet Revelation explains what stands behind these scenes. A dragon crouches to devour the child at the moment of his birth. He snaps but misses, for God will preserve him. The Lord is the master of history, and he will save his people through this child. He will. So again, think of this evil. As horrific as his evil was, as horrible a scene as this is, as unimaginable as this is, that the king of Israel is going to call for the slaughter of infants in a town five miles from his own palace, it springs from a far more malevolent source. The evil that you see being carried out by Herod doesn't simply spring from his heart. It springs from the plan and work of Satan himself. And again, what Doriani is referencing is Revelation chapter 12 in Revelation, we see this escalating conflict in the world and the judgment of God in the final days. But then all of a sudden in chapter 12, there's a reversal back to its roots, its history, its origins. How did we get here? How do we get to this great final conflict between good and evil and the coming of Christ? Well, it goes way back to before time in this scene that we see played out in Revelation chapter 12. And it reminds us that Herod is merely continuing a war that began since the beginning. It's been raging since the beginning. Eugene Peterson has a commentary on Revelation and wrote a bit about this scene that we see playing out in Revelation chapter 12. And I'm not going to read all the verses to you of that book, but let me share with you a little bit of Peterson's understanding of it. A woman appears in the sky dressed in a garment woven from the rays of the sun. Each thread 
lambent. Twelve stars pulsating white and red fire, a crown on her head. She stands on the moon and she's pregnant. But then a great dragon cruises into view. As hideous as the lady is lovely, with seven crowns perched precariously on his horny heads, the dragon is a crimson gash violating the sky. And he fixes his eyes on the woman. He crouches behind her ominously, poised to devour her child at the instant of his birth. And remember, this metaphorical language is a picture of evil, Satan intending to undo what God is doing to save the world. Since Satan introduced the temptation in the garden, and mankind fell into temptation and sin and darkness and death, and from that moment God promised a solution, the salvation through the seed of this woman. Through the woman, a seed, a Savior will be born. Satan has sought to crush it. And so in verse 12, you see the dragon sweeping one-third of the stars from the sky. He takes a third of those heavenly characters with him, those angelic characters with him. He then storms heaven, verses 7 through 9. And not fighting God, for God has no counterpart. He fights his counterpart there. It's Michael, the archangel, the protector of Israel. Michael fights him, defeats him, retains most of the angels, and he hurls Satan down. And in this great act, the Christ child, depicted in Revelation 12, is safe. Safe from the dragon, safe from the destruction of the enemy, and he will shepherd the nations according to the Scriptures. He'll ascend to heaven. How does this happen? The woman is in the desert, protected, and the father preserves the child and the woman. And we see in Revelation 12 just one more instance of how Satan is defeated again and again and again. Why do I tell you all that? I never want you to think, I never want you to fall prey to the myth that God has any equals. That when we look at this world and you see evil prevail, whether it's on a personal level against you, whether it's on a national scale, or whether it's global, I never want you to think that there are counterparts to God. God has no counterpart. Satan is not his equal. Evil is not competitive with good. And God ultimately will prevail. The Scriptures promise us this. We serve a king who comes to rule and reign. He's a ruling and reigning king, and we will be victorious with him. You know, as I look at this text, I don't want to ignore something in it that is just so painful. On behalf of the families who lost a child there. Again, let me re- reread the text, starting in verse 18. What happened in Bethlehem and the regions around it, the death of those infant children was a fulfillment of this prophetic word, a voice heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Not Rachel's children exactly, her immediate offspring, but Rachel is a mother of Israel. Weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because there are no more. They're gone. What do you do with this text? I mean, again, we can't just brush it aside and say, man, that's, that's rough. Wow, that's terrible. Let's move on to chapter 3. I want you to see in this text something that you may have missed if you go too quickly over it. Something that I think the original hearers and the first readers even of this gospel account of Matthew as it circulated through the churches would have grasped. That you and I might miss because we have unintentionally far too often, intentionally sometimes unhitched ourselves from the Old Testament. 
Because the truths here are rooted deeply in it. And under the inspiration of God's Spirit, Matthew would have known these things, would have assumed these things, and and actually quoted a text that would have reminded people of these things. And it's actually rooted in this statement. I want you to write this down, then let me explain how. God's comfort is eternal. God's comfort is eternal. Now, I'm not saying this is going to be easy to hear. And for some of you, it will apply very personally because you suffered real loss, great loss. There's no promise that you will ever find in Scripture, no promise that God has ever given, that all the peace that you're looking for, all the answers that you seek, all the comfort that you need, all the healing to every brokenness in your heart will be found in this life. It's not there. But that is why God has given us the promise of eternity. That's why our hope in what happens next is absolutely critical. This is one of those factors that separates those who belong to God from those who do not. This is the dividing line between hopelessness and despair and pain and suffering and difficulty, but with confidence in the promises of God. So that when we weep and we can't be comforted, even then in our deep weeping, We do not weep as people who have no hope. I tend not to tell personal stories of suffering and things because I never want to seem to be manipulating someone or manipulating your emotions, you know, trying to leverage a story that has real pain. But since this doesn't involve someone here, and it happened in my previous church, I think I might be able to say it more safely and not not draw someone back in in this room into some deep suffering. A friend of mine in the church, we'd become friends just through common age of our, of our young kids. He was a pretty new believer. He and his young family had come into our church, he and his wife, and had been, had been faithful. Um, he was growing. He was, uh, he was a sponge. Um, I can remember he called me one day and asked me if I wanted to go to a football game with him. He was a Florida Gators fan. Steve, don't hold that against him. I didn't know what he drove um, and I have to admit, kind of, I was kind of embarrassed to go with him because he drove a Ford F-250 with about a 60-inch lift and about 70-inch tires. And I mean, it was actually hard for me to climb into it. And I thought, man, I feel like such a redneck here, but whatever. <laughs> we went. Bill and I were friends. And I got a call one night. Bill's wife was in the hospital about to give birth. And I got a call. Things are not going well. Can you come up here? When I got to the hospital, I'd never seen a scene like this before, and I I can't speculate on what happened exactly or why it happened. But the whole floor was in a bit of just just chaos. As his wife was giving birth, she'd gone into distress, and for some reason, a crash cart was not there, not available. Short version of the story is within a little while, she, she passed away giving birth in that room, and Bill's there in the waiting room. The baby is in great distress as well, and they're doing everything they can to save the child's life, the baby's life. Baby survived birth and went immediately into a NICU unit, but that night on that hospital floor was just unimaginable pain, people just crying, nurses crying. One of the hospital staff asked me, would I, would I mind talking to some of these nurses individually? We'll give you a room. Can you counsel with them? And I did the best I could. I was only about 27, 28 years old at the time, and had never seen or experienced anything like this. And Bill, my friend, just, well, he was still in shock. 
And maybe the worst part of the story hadn't even happened yet. Several days later, the baby taken down to West Palm Beach to a NICU unit. Bill called and said, um, baby's not going to make it. And they're taking all the life support away. Um, would you come down here and be with me? I don't want to be by myself. Now, I've never been through anything like this before, and I hope I never do again. But they disconnected the baby from all the tubes and whatnot and put the baby in Bill's arms. And we sat in a little room together for about half an hour as the baby slowly died in his arms. And I was there with Bill and watched this happen just right there, right in front of us. That's the sort of pain that you don't say, hey, it's going to be all right. Hey, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. All those Christian cliches that we often use in people's most tragic circumstances, they just don't play. And I'm going to tell you in a moment like that, you better have something deeper than, hey, it's going to, it's going to be okay. It's going to get better. Hey, this too shall pass. Hey, time heals all wounds. You better have something more than that. You better have something like eternity in mind. Because when I look at this text, I'm asking myself, how do you comfort a weeping mother who's lost her toddler child? How do you comfort Rachel who now cries inconsolably? What do you say in that moment? But here's the beauty of the Spirit of God and the beauty of His Word that He gives us. We don't have to fish for the answers because there's some hope woven into the text. The verse that Matthew is quoting comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, sandwiched in the middle is this pain of great loss. But on both ends is a promise of God. In the middle, pain and suffering. But at the beginning, there's a foundational truth that you and I must believe. And this is my challenge to you as a Christian either in pain or before the pain comes, to have this conviction. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, we're told of God's everlasting love and His unchanging faithfulness towards His own. Now, those are two critical concepts, everlasting and unchanging. Listen to the words. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Now, I don't know when you might need that in your life or if you already have. And maybe you had that confidence and that hope when that moment of great pain came. Maybe you didn't, and now you can cling to this truth. God's love for His own is everlasting. His faithfulness is unchanging. And it's not determined by our circumstances. Our circumstances don't define God for us. You look at the pain you're suffering, and then you deduce from that, God's not good, God's not fair, God doesn't care. Our circumstances don't define God from us, for us. And our circumstances shouldn't deny our understanding of His love for us. He's promised to love us with an everlasting love. And how did He demonstrate that love for us? In what way is that love demonstrated, not just spoken? Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now stick with me here. How do we know that God loves us? Rebellious us. Sinful us. Indifferent us. Inconsistent us. 
undeserving us. How do we know that he loves us? And how can we count on that love? Because he who loved us so much gave his only son for us. That we might have life. And life eternal. He demonstrated his love for us. And, and, and our great suffering, whatever that is, whatever pains we've encountered, whatever difficulties we face, listen to me here. Whether it's a struggle you're still in, whether it's a question you can't answer, whether it's a pain that you still face, that great suffering, even if it's as profound as this, is ultimately going to be answered, listen, I chose these words intentionally, and displaced by your salvation. I, I don't mean that at the moment you say, Jesus saved me, all those pains and memories will go away. I mean, there's more to your salvation than saying yes to Jesus. You were saved at a moment in time where you put your faith and trust in Christ and you crossed over from death to life. You are being saved in this moment as the work of God continues in you called sanctification. But there's future to your salvation. It's called glorification. And then everything that you've had faith in will give way to sight. It becomes tangible and real. And every ounce of faith and trust you've had becomes validated. And everything that's in your life is now seen in light of Christ. And His goodness is absolutely vindicated in that moment. It's going to be displaced. Listen to the end of Jeremiah. Again, suffering in the middle. Rachel weeps for her children. But even though her children are lost, it doesn't mean that God has not loved them with an everlasting love and He's not faithful throughout all generations. Because in the end, he says, verse 31, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Do you see the hope that's given in Jeremiah chapter 31? It's not that you're going to feel better soon. It's not that you're going to get over this. It's not that you're going to find a way not to think about this anymore. Or that in some way you're going to gain something in this life that's going to replace it. It's the promise of salvation itself, the promise of God himself. Listen, I know that that doesn't always make sense to our human emotions, but that is the hope we have in Christ. That all the pains and sufferings of this life will one day give way to the glory that's in Christ. And how much will it give way? This is why I chose the word displaced. It's the Apostle Paul who wrote it like this in Romans 8.18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That this temporary loss, as painful as it is, even if the hurt lasts for a lifetime, can't be compared to infinite and eternal glory. And this, one of my favorite personal verses, one of my, one of my anchoring verses, one of the ones that's a rock for me, a tether for me to hope. Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you saints. Give thanks to His holy name. Why can I sing when I hurt? How can I praise even in pain? This is the reason. Listen to verse 5. 
For his anger is but for a moment. But his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And this is not talking about simply tomorrow. For those who are in Christ, you have a joyful morning coming. There may be weeping in this life, and it may be profound. And God has made no promises nowhere to eliminate, remove every cause of pain and suffering and hurt in this life, but He has promised to do that in the next. Our promise in eternity is the goodness of God Himself. Because of that goodness given to us, tangible and real, there'll be no more crying or mourning. There'll be no suffering or pain. God's comfort is eternal. That was the comfort in, in the Old Testament. That's the comfort in the New. That's the comfort for us. Finally, in this text, I want you to see this. Something that's not just theological or abstract, but something that's very real and personal. Stay with me. I want you to see in all of this story, this account, this, this fantastic, intriguing, amazing drama playing out here with all of these characters. I mean, this writes like a movie script. You've got profound evil, and you've got this mystery. You've got these twists and turns. You've got the supernatural and angels speaking, and you've got Joseph like a faithful stalwart, listening and hearing from God and not doing what circumstances dictate or human wisdom would determine, but he's following faithfully. You've got this infant Messiah, the hope of the world, being preserved and protected all along by the mostly unseen hand of God. But I want you to see in all of that that God's sovereignty is decisive. Listen, in this story, God's sovereignty is decisive. Just because the threat is real and evil is profound, those things are certainly true. And I'm sure that it was real fear and real anxiety. I mean, all the language of the text suggests genuine, wrenching emotion here. Take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt. Stay there till I tell you. He's searching to destroy this child. They go in the middle of the night. Everything here is wrought with real fear and emotion and drama. But in this, as we look back and we see the story revealed to us in Scripture, and we get to see what those participating in it couldn't have seen, God is sovereign in all of this, and nothing will supersede the will of God. God graciously speaks to Joseph through a direct message and a messenger, an angel. He speaks, it's the will of God, the work of God. I'm going to tell you what to do, and I'm going to do it in such a way that it's not ambiguous. I mean, we'd love to have this, right? I mean, we'd love to know what the will of God is in all of our circumstances. And when you put your head on that pillow tonight, to have an angel speak to you, that would be pretty awesome. Or better yet, just to make sure it's not what I had for dinner, God, would you do it while I'm awake? But we're not privileged to that. We're given God's word. And we're given the gift of thinking and reason. And we're given the work of the Holy Spirit in us to help us un understand and interpret what God's Word says. And so if you're eager to hear God speaking to you, be hungry for His Word. Dig in prayerfully. Lean in hard to the Holy Spirit and say, God, show me what you'd have me to do. But the angel speaks. But just because the angel speaks, the angel didn't pick them up. Mary and Joseph weren't escorted in chariot of fire down into Egypt. They had to go. They had to pack up. They had to leave their, their new home. They had to be obedient, and Joseph faithfully obeys what he hears. And Joseph, in his wisdom, is a good father, careful to protect his family, doing what is his great priority, by the way, fathers. He's guarding his wife and child. He's protecting them. He doesn't return to Judea, and instead he settles in Nazareth. He's wise enough. He recognizes that Herod's son 
Now the Romans, who are really the real rulers of that region, now upon the death of Herod have displaced singular authority and divided up into provinces. And one of his sons, as bad as he is, has taken that region. So he says, just in case the son wants to carry on the work of the father, just in case evil continues down that family line, he doesn't go back. He's doing the right thing. He's using wisdom. He's being obedient. But I want you to see this in the text. In all of Joseph's actions and responses, okay, that looks determinative. It looks like it's all on Joseph. Man, I'm, I'm going to obey. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to grab up my family. We're going to go down. I'm going to wait till I hear. I'm going I'm to go back, but I'm going to show wisdom and go to a different area. I'll go to Nazareth instead. And all those actions and responses, those are secondary causes. God is working concurrently through all these. Joseph is doing and responding and acting, and God is doing. But God is primary. And God is working in both the means. Here's the message, the warning. Here's the response, the obedience. Here's the journey and the travel, as well as the end. Because here's what's good news in this. God is going to do what God says he's going to do. Joseph is not a robot. Mary is not a robot. The wise men who go back another way, not automatrons. Everyone with will and understanding, everyone with responsibility for their decisions, and yet God is going to carry out the means and the end all the way to redemption. Why? Because he's God, and this is what he promised, and he wouldn't be God if he couldn't keep his promises. And the salvation of God is certain. So in God's hands, Jesus is safe. Jesus is safe. I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. But we are his children. We are children of God. In God's hands, we are safe. I remember the first time I said this to my wife, she thought I was spouting off some serious heresy. And I was doing some Bible study and reading, and I just told her I've come to the determination that I am, I am immortal. I'm immortal. You've been watching too much Marvel no, I'm immortal until God says otherwise. As God's people, we're immortal until God says otherwise. doesn't mean we take unnecessary risks. We certainly don't test God, as we'll see. Jesus responding to the temptations of the enemy soon in the Gospel of Matthew. But it means that my, my days are in His hands. Your days are in His hands, and we can trust Him. I'll share one last story with you. Pardon me for the length of time. Really not you guys. You guys are in comfortable seats with other adults. It's the, uh, it's the dozen Calvary folks over there in those blue children's ministry t-shirts. Right now they're pulling their hair out because three-year-olds have about had enough of this stuff. <laughs> Lord, we pray for them right now, but we're not quitting. I want to show you how this concept of the sovereignty of God, it, again, is not, not just theological. It's not abstract. It's really deeply personal. And I want to do this by sharing someone else's story of loss. Some of you may follow him. You may see his posts on social media. You may go to his blog. His name is Tim Challies. Tim's 20-year-old son, November 2020, a student at uh, Boyce College in Louisville Seminary there, Southern Seminary, was playing basketball, died suddenly. Now, from our purview, Tim's a faithful man, Faithful Christian family, servant in his church. Why do I tell you that? Not because good things don't happen to good people, but the sort of person people say, wow, why would that happen to them? As if any of us deserve anything good that comes our way. But yet they lost their son suddenly, son Nick. I want to read you a portion of what he said in an interview after that. 
The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. So said the inimitable Charles Spurgeon. Or did he? He might have said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is a pillow upon which you lay your head. Or maybe he said both. Or maybe he said something halfway between. Either way, it's clear that in Spurgeon's dark hours, he found comfort in a particular attribute of God, his sovereignty. Sovereignty speaks to power and the right to reign. Greg Allison says, it's the divine attribute of being all-powerful as the King and Lord who exercises supreme rule over all creation. God's sovereignty has indeed offered comfort in these dark days, he says. It has assured us that there was no earthly power, no demonic power, no power above or below that had its way with our boy, that interrupted and superseded God's plan for him. There was no moment in which God turned his back or got distracted with other affairs or nodded off to sleep. There was no medical deformity or genetic abnormality or whatever else could cause a young man to collapse and die that had been overlooked by God. God's sovereignty has assured us that it was ultimately no one's will but God's that Nick lived just 20 short years. Young Nick, like old Enoch, walked with God and was not, for God took him. Now hear the rest of this. But while God's sovereignty offers comfort, it offers comfort only if we know something of God's character. After all, God might be sovereign and capricious. He might be sovereign and selfish. He might be sovereign and arbitrary. He might be sovereign and evil. So for this reason, we've had to take a harder look at God. We've had to ask, what else is true of God? He says, if there was no moment in which God stopped being sovereign, there is no moment in which He stopped being good. If we're laying our heads on any pillow these days, it's the pillow of God's character, and especially God's goodness. We keep saying it. God is good. We might be saying it with sorrow and bewilderment and something less than full faith. We might be saying it as a question. God is good, right? But we're saying it. We don't necessarily understand how God is good in this or why taking our son is consistent with his goodness, but we know it must be. If Nick's death was not a lapse in God's sovereignty, it was also not a lapse in his goodness. If there was no moment in which God stopped being sovereign, there is no moment in which he stopped being good. Good toward us, good toward Nick, good according to his perfect wisdom. And then this statement, God can't not be good. That's why this matters. And in the end, the conclusion of this, or the epilogue, is that Jesus will be called a Nazarene. We'll see the importance of this more as the Gospel of Matthew unfolds. But it's consistent again with the Old Testament prophets. Don't go down a rabbit hole looking for which prophet is quoted there. You won't find it. You won't find a direct quote. It's more of a summary statement, a, a sentiment, a, an encapsulation of the predictions of Christ. In the lowliness of Christ, Jesus will be known as a Nazarene, one of those sort of outpost places, one of those places of no importance. If you thought Bethlehem was insignificant, Naz Nazareth was worse. So much so that Nathaniel said in John 1.46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But this family move to Nazareth is really another confirmation that he is the Messiah. Another confirmation. And his growing up and beginning ministry there would be another example of fulfilled prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 3. One who's despised, one who's rejected, not esteemed.
It fits with the prophetic theme of Jesus. He's not the one you would have thought. He's not where you would have been looking. He doesn't fit the human expectation. Wasn't born in Jerusalem. Didn't grow up in Bethlehem, even the city of the kings, where David is from. But no, from somewhere else, that little outpost called Nazareth, where only by a miracle of God would your eyes see, your mind comprehend, and your heart receive that this is truly the Messiah. The unlikely Savior Jesus, this is His origin story, the only hope of the world. I hope you've put your faith and trust in Him. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank You for Jesus. He who was, He who now is, interceding for us, as we sang earlier, pleading His blood on our account. And the one who is to come, as surely as He came, He will come again in glory, in victory. We long for that day. We thank You for Jesus, the promised, prophesied, genuine, authentic, only true Savior, the hope of mankind, for now and forever our hope. Father, I pray that today there will be people here who are encouraged by Your Word, encouraged by Your Spirit, encouraged by the promise of Christ. And I pray there might be someone even now who would look to Jesus and believe, save me, take away my sin, give me new life, do this for me, make me one of Yours. Give me eternal hope, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us? As we sing together, reminding ourselves of who Jesus is, Christians, let's sing out. If you're not a believer yet and you want to be one, you want to become one, you want to put your faith and trust in Him and you're not sure exactly what's next, not sure exactly how, then several of us will be here on our pastoral staff. We'd love to talk with you, pray with you, encourage you, lead you in what that next step is. How can you leave here knowing for sure that Jesus is your Savior, your King, and that you belong to Him? We want you to have that gift, that confidence, that assurance today. So we're going to invite you to come. As